I will be the first to acknowledge that I do not speak the language of technology with any degree of fluency. I know enough about the language, however, to be able to understand that something called interfacing is a critically important portion of the right functioning of our technology. And as I understand it, and those of you who are more technologically savvy can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, an interface is a point of technological connection between two independent systems that enable those systems to communicate with one another. And for our purposes, practically speaking, the interfaces that matter most are called user interfaces. And as the name implies, those are the points of connection that help users to communicate with their technology. And so to put this in some kind of context so that you understand what I'm describing, there is, for example, a command line interface which involves communicating with a computer via a keyboard and typed commands. But there is also a graphical user interface, right? And that involves communicating with a computer, but this time with a mouse or a touchpad a pointer on the screen and icons. And that eventually led to what is called a menu-driven interface, which involves the meeting of our technological needs through the offering of a menu, like the menu that you might find in an ATM. And there's form-based interface, which, is involved, which involves inputting data through text boxes. What a technological development that is, but best of all, in my frame of reference, best of all, is something called a natural language interface, because that's Star Trek stuff. <laughs> that involves a person actually speaking to a computer, as in, Siri, how many miles are there between New York City and San Francisco? Hey, no joke, the other day, just for fun, you ought to try this, by the way, because I understand that it gives a different response each time, but I asked Siri, Siri, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And do you know the response I received? No joke. The response that I received was this. I got 99 problems, and a philosophical dilemma ain't one. That's what I heard from Siri. My talking phone is smarting off to me. That's natural language interface. So I think you're with me that an interface is this point of technological connection that enables two independent systems to be able to communicate with one another. This morning, I'm inviting you to find in this technological process of interfacing a new vocabulary with which to understand some of the deeper and harder realities of our social world because it is most certainly true, don't you think? It is most certainly true that we are living in a social world in which it often becomes painfully difficult, and that is not an exaggeration painfully difficult for these independent systems that we call human beings to interface with one another. That is, to communicate and relate with one another in a manner that feels connecting and fruitful. I suspect you don't need too many, too many examples of that, but think with me, for example, about the political discourse that happens in our country at present. You tell me, you tell me where is that space where Democrats and Republicans 
are regularly interfacing for the purpose of cultivating a vision of the common good. See, it's become difficult for people to interface across their political perspectives. It's also become, I've noticed, incredibly difficult for people to interface in truthful conversations, hear that, truthful conversations about matters of race without people becoming either defensive or accusatory. And interfacing between men and women, well, that's always been fraught with challenges. But my suspicion is that that has become even more difficult because of the modern and necessary conversations that are taking place related to gender and gender justice. I'll say it again, in this social world in which we live, it becomes frequently painfully difficult for these independent systems that we call human beings to interface with one another. And I would suggest to you this morning that one of the scriptures that we heard moments ago, more particularly the scripture from the New Testament book of Acts, is at its essence a scripture about the urgency of interfacing. A first century evangelist by the name of Paul from the city of Tarsus, located in what is now Turkey, ventures into a different culture altogether. More specifically, he travels to the Greek city of Athens for the purpose of talking with people about Jesus. He's an evangelist after all, which is to say he's looking to do a little bit of meaningful interfacing. And Paul comes to this place in Athens called the Areopagus, which is a prominent rock on which had been built this grand hall that functioned as a community gathering place, but also a courtroom of sorts. And there's this interesting detail. Did you hear it in the scripture that on his way to the Areopagus, we're told that Paul paid careful attention, which is to say, if we translate that rightly, he studied the statues the many statues that the Athenian people had built to honor the gods, the deities in which they believed. Now, why in the world would the Apostle Paul do that? Why would the Apostle Paul pay careful attention to these statues that reflected a theological worldview in which he clearly did not believe? Well, I can't speak for Paul, I can't answer for Paul in that regard, but I'm wondering if some of it might have had to do with the fact that at least at this point, Paul had come to understand that these statues matter to the Athenian people and they matter deeply. Maybe at this point in his ministry, Paul is beginning to learn that healthy interfacing sometimes requires paying attention to what matters most to the people with whom we are seeking to interface. Not dismissing, not demonizing, but appreciating. And another interesting detail, as he is paying close attention to these statues, Paul notices one statue in particular on which had been inscribed the following words, to an unknown God. And I like to think of this as a just-in-case statue, that the Athenian people were so deeply theologically concerned about offending any, any of the gods that this is their way of saying essentially, hey, if we have unintentionally missed any deity in our worship, 
in our naming, in our theological worldview, if we have missed any deity, please do not be offended by that. This statue is for you, to an unknown God. And so the Apostle Paul makes his way to the Areopagus, and he begins this time of interfacing with the Athenian people, and the interfacing goes something like this. This is my paraphrase. Athenian people, I see that you are incredibly religious. Because on my way here, I spent some time paying attention to all the statues that you created to honor the deities in which you believe. And I know, I know that those statues could only have been built by people who have a deep religious faith. And I'll tell you what else I noticed, Paul continues. I noticed that there was this one statue on which I saw these words inscribed to an unknown God. And I was just wondering, would you give me permission to talk with you a little bit about this unknown God? Because I just have this sense that I know who that unknown God is. In fact, I think that this unknown God became flesh in a man and was raised from the dead. And I would love to talk with you about him because in our talking, we might hear something that will take our shared vision beyond statues and into the redemptive activity of a God who cannot be contained in our artwork. Now, what is Paul doing in this moment? I would suggest to you that he is interfacing, something that Paul doesn't always do in every one of his letters. That becomes clear. But in this moment, I think that he is interfacing. He is naming the things that are most important to the faith of the people with whom he's communicating, thereby listening to their story, and thereby earning the right to share his story. And for Paul, his story is always about Jesus. Always. Now, let's not be misled. Paul has a definite opinion about the wrongness of the Athenian people's idolatry. No doubt about that. But I think it's significant that in this moment, Paul refuses to weaponize his theological perspective against the people. He refuses to weaponize it. Instead, he interfaces, creating a space for mutual respect, mutual attentiveness. And in this world, in this world where interfacing can be so painfully difficult, in this world where communication is so frequently freighted with agendas that alienate, in this world where people are so frequently tempted to isolate themselves in the echo chamber of their choice, Instead of truly engaging with other souls in this world, I cannot think of a more urgent challenge for the church than to take up the mantle of the Apostle Paul in this moment of Scripture and to devote ourselves to the work of what I call redemptive interfacing. And that will require much. But at the very least, it will require allowing the Holy Spirit to cultivate within us an authentic curiosity about the people whose lives intersect with ours. An authentic curiosity, the kind of curiosity that might just inspire us to pay attention to a few statues along the way so that we might be able to engage deeply with other lives 
and allow other lives to engage deeply with ours so that the living Christ might become known in the intimate interfacing of human hearts. And I wonder, as I look at these incredible souls who have gathered for worship today, what would that mean? What would that look like in your life? Maybe some of you are experts at that kind of interfacing already. If you are, great, awesome. But what does that look like in your network of relationships? What does that look like in your work? What might redemptive interfacing mean for you? For the cause of Jesus. So it was about uh, 13 years ago that I purchased early entrance tickets to a comic book convention in Pittsburgh. And by the way, I don't know how many of you have been to a comic book convention, but I really would suggest that if you haven't, you make that a priority because that, that is a fascinating cultural event in uh, this country of ours. And I can practically guarantee that if you go to one, you won't ever forget it. But I purchased early entrance tickets, and when I walked into this convention center in Pittsburgh, my eyes were immediately drawn to this huge poster on the back wall of the large, one of the large rooms of the convention center. And it was a Star Wars poster. And so, without thinking about it, I gravitated toward that back wall simply because, well, it was Star Wars. And as far as I'm concerned, if it's Star Wars, attention must be paid. That's just how I tend to look at things. <laughs> and so I went to that back wall and I noticed that underneath the poster there was an older man setting up a table and I assumed that he was an employee of the convention center. And so I initiated a conversation with him asking about what was going on, uh, that there would be this Star Wars display. And he explained to me that he was not an employee of the uh, convention center, but he was rather one of the guest celebrities who was setting up his own table for autographs and photo opportunities. Now let me explain to you who this guest celebrity was. Bear with me. Bear with me. So if you have seen the original Star Wars film released in 1977, Star Wars A New Hope, you will remember that there is a scene that takes place on the Death Star in which one of the Imperial officers, Admiral Mahdi, makes the mistake of mocking Darth Vader. Darth Vader had just made reference to this mystical force and this Imperial officer speaks up in a spirit of mockery. Don't try to frighten us with your sorcerer's ways, Vader. Your sad devotion to that ancient religion hasn't helped you to conjure up those stolen data plans nor given you clairvoyance enough. Yeah, I've seen the movie a couple of times, but... Um, <laughs> nor given you clairvoyance enough to find the hidden rebel fortress, and in the middle of this mockery, Darth Vader, and remember, this is the first Star Wars movie, so we know nothing about what he can do. Darth Vader simply gestures toward the man, and the man begins to choke. I find your lack of faith disturbing. <laughs> well, that choking guy on the Death Star was the guy setting up the table <laughs> in that convention center. His name, Richard Leparmentier, uh, he died a number of years ago, but that day, in that convention center, I got to spend 15 minutes talking with the choking guy from Star Wars. <laughs> I was in my element, and while we're talking with one another, he could not have been kinder. A third party joined the conversation, a young woman in her 20s, 
uh, sparsely dressed, I would say, in a, um, what looked to be a superhero costume that I did not recognize. I assumed that she was a ticket holder for the event, but she explained to me that she too was one of the visiting celebrities and pointed over to her table. And over her table, there was a large poster on the wall that included a photo of this young woman and these words, her first name, her last name, Playboy Playmate of the Year. And she went, on, she went on to say, there's an independent comic book company that is doing a limited three-part series on my life, and it's going to be a fictionalized account of my life, and I get to be a superhero in it. So, just so that you're clear about the scenario, the choking guy from Star Wars, Playboy Playmate of the Year, local United Methodist minister in this convention center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And that's the humorous scenario for the conversation, but here is the very serious confession from my heart. I have this vivid memory of how I was thinking in that moment, and in that moment, this is the truth, my thoughts immediately, immediately went in two different but connected directions, neither of which was good, neither of which honored Jesus. First, my thoughts went in the direction of what I would describe as judgmentalism, and shaming. And in my thinking, that sounded something like this. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Even in a comic book convention, women are being sexualized. And this woman, I remember thinking of that, this woman is content to go along with that. Judgmentalism and shaming. And of that, I heartily repent. The second direction in which my thoughts moved was a much more boring, simplistic, uh, immature embarrassment. And in my thinking, that sounded like this. Wait a minute, what if somebody is here at this convention from the church that I'm serving right now? <laughs> and they get the wrong idea because I'm having this extended conversation with the Playboy Playmate of the Year. Stupid. I mean, stupid. And I say stupid because neither of those directions of thought, well, let me put it this way. Each of those directions of thought is antithetical to the way of redemptive interfacing. And each one of those directions of thought objectified the person who was standing in front of me and diminished her personhood. And as I'm thinking about those things, she asked the question, what do you do for a living? <laughs> And in my judgmentalism, to be honest with you, I had come to this conclusion that these two people probably didn't have the spiritual wherewithal to be able to appreciate what a guy like me does in my vocation. So I was really tempted to lie about it, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. And I said, well, what do I do for a living? I'm a, uh, tell you the truth, I'm a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition. The Star Wars guy immediately spoke up with great excitement. You're a clergyman. I knew it. I knew you were a clergyman. He started shaking my hand aggressively. I'm a lapsed Episcopalian myself, he said, but I love meeting people who are imaginative enough to live by faith. And then the playmate spoke into the conversation differently, and she said, you know, it's interesting. I used to attend a United Methodist Church when I was a girl with my family, but my parents divorced when I was nine, and I guess the church was one of the casualties of the divorce because I haven't been back since. In fact, she said, I might be wrong, but I think you're the only minister with whom I've had an extended conversation. 
And then she leaned in to whisper something to me as though she didn't want anyone else to hear it. And this is what she said, by the way, thank you for not assuming the worst about me when you found out who I am and what I do. And this wave of guilt came over me because I knew what my thoughts had been. So here's the point. For the next 10 minutes until other ticket holders started showing up for the next 10 minutes, my two new friends became the Apostle Paul for me. And that convention center became a bit of an Areopagus. And the two of them walked past the statue of my self-righteousness and the statue of my judgmentalism in order to usher me into a moment of redemptive interfacing that they were able to envision even when I could not. See, we don't know. That's the beauty of this pilgrimage. That's the beauty of this adventure. We never know when the next opportunity for redemptive interfacing is going to come along. For Paul, it happened in Athens at the Areopagus. For us, it might be in a work meeting or in a classroom or in a restaurant booth or in a concert, maybe even in a comic book convention. But when those moments for redemptive interfacing do come about, please, for the sake of Jesus, pay attention to them. Pay attention to them. Don't miss them. Engage them. Because the truth of the matter is that we stand in this long tradition of a redemptive interfacer by the name of the Apostle Paul, but way more important, we stand in the grace of Jesus, who is himself the incarnation of God's gracious interface with a hurting world. And my prayer as I stand here today, my prayer is that this Jesus will become increasingly known because of the gracious, patient, intentional, redemptive interfacing of his followers. May it be so. May it be so. Amen.